The scripture reading this morning is Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. At that time, Jesus said, Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to the infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all of you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. We enter our passage at this very interesting point in the Gospel of Matthew. So far, Matthew has shared the birth of Jesus, the ministry of John the Baptist, great teachings of Jesus, including uh, the Sermon on the Mount, great miracles, even his disciples have done miracles. But in Matthew 11 and 12, the focus shifts a little bit. Matthew focuses on growing opposition to the ministry of Jesus. The Pharisees are increasingly frustrated with what Jesus is doing. And in fact, in our chapter, Jesus puts words in their mouth, Matthew 11, 18, and 19. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Okay, Jesus knows they're talking about him. And they're not happy with what he's doing, and they're not happy with what he's saying, and they're not happy about who he's hanging out with. Then Jesus denounces the cities that he's been doing ministry in, uh, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. These are places that are also beginning to turn against him, even though he's been doing miracles in their midst. We get to our passage, which we'll talk about in a minute, and then it's followed by the disciples picking grains on the Sabbath because they're hungry. The Pharisees get mad because you can't pick food on the Sabbath. And Jesus then combats them. Then Jesus goes into the synagogue and there is a man with a withered hand. The Pharisees ask if it's okay to heal a man on the Sabbath. Jesus does heal the man on the Sabbath and then they get really mad. But of course, what are they going to say, right? Jesus, you shouldn't have healed that man on this day. Well, the man who healed the man with a withered hand, he's probably got the right to say when he heals and when he doesn't heal, right? So they can't say much to him, but they do get mad. And from then on, they make it a point that they have to end him. The Pharisees go out and conspire, the text says, to destroy him. Jesus does an exorcism and the Pharisees try to say he's using a devil to cast out the demons, which Jesus points out doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Then chapter 12 includes Jesus calling them, listen to this, a brood of vipers, saying that they will be judged by their fruit. So in chapter 11 and chapter 12, there's this conflict brewing between the Pharisees and between Jesus. And we know this conflict is going to lead to the cross, but to understand this conflict You really need to focus on our text. Our text happens right at the end of chapter 11. And it's sort of the hinge where Jesus puts in his own words 
what the conflict is about. The passage is very strange. Jesus is talking to this group, and then the text says he declares in front of everybody, but he's talking to the Father because he says, I thank you, Father. So what he does is he's talking to everybody, and it'd be like me just all of a sudden in the middle of what I'm talking about, turning and praying to God out loud in a way that you are obviously meant to hear. Okay? To understand what Jesus is saying, uh, and thereby understand the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, and those they influence, you have to understand uh, this interesting metaphor of the yoke, used more than 50 times in the Bible and in different ways. One of the challenges with metaphors is that metaphors travel, right? Metaphors are particularly common images that we're all familiar with. They can mean a lot of different things. Let's take just the example of fire, very base image, okay? If I say you're on fire... It can mean literally you're on fire, right? Get a fire extinguisher, you're on fire. Or it can mean you're doing really well. You're doing awesome, keep it going. If I say you're fired, completely different, right? Now you no longer have a job. If I say I'm hot, it normally means that I'm warm. But if I say you're hot, it can mean you're warm. But it better be that I'm talking to my wife because it can also mean that you're attractive, right? I can say my love burns for you, and I can say that I'm burnt out, and I can say that I got burned, right? And that can mean one thing. I could say you got burned, and maybe you got burned, or maybe somebody torched you with a really good uh, uh, rip, you know, made fun of you in some way. There I did it again. I said torched, right? Torched, another use of fire. Um, and I'm, I'm just getting started, right? Because we could say ignited, sparked, fuming, smoldering, fiery, blazing. See, an an image like fire is so common to people that it can be used for a lot of different kinds of metaphor, not just to say fire. In our passage, Jesus is using the image of a yoke, and and yoke is something everybody in those days would have known. Okay, now, um, I'm out here for a reason. A lot of times in antique shops, they sell these as yokes. Does anybody know what these are actually called? It's a single tree, and it's how you used to hook up the horses, mainly for carriages. So it actually goes this way normally, and it would hook up the two horses, and then the carriage could hook up to the middle board, and it would equalize it. Okay? This is not a yoke. Let me show you a real yoke. Okay? A real yoke would have to have one strong beam across. Okay? And then normally some kind of piece like this, and it was normally with your animals, you'd have beams that were fitted to individual animals a lot of times, okay? And so this is the original horsepower. This is where horsepower comes from right here. Okay, so it would go over you, go over your animals really, right? So that the torque of the animals pushing could help you plow. This is called a yoke, okay? Uh, And it had to be a very strong beam because it was the thing that transferred the horsepower to whatever you were pulling, whatever you were plowing with, that sort of thing. So that is what a yoke really looks like. But then there are other kinds of yokes. Okay, this is what a lot of times we think of when we have a yoke. This is a very small one. Uh, I think it's very old, but it must have been for like miniature ponies or something. I can't quite figure out why this one's so small. Because you couldn't have horses this close. Anyway, this is an old one. Uh, somebody has obviously put a wooden piece that can't come out anymore for display at some point. But this would be a double yoke. 
And so and when you would have these things, you would have two animals that you could yoke together, yoke there being a verb, so that they could plow together and you would get two horsepower. Okay? You get two horsepower or in, in Israel probably more likely donkeys or oxen okay, that uh, could pull the weight. Okay? So this is a yoke. And um, I'll try to set that right there. Okay. Everyone in the, in the first century had seen these. You have seen these, and, and you have seen more of this kind of stuff because you live near the Amish. But there are a whole bunch of people around the world that haven't seen these in a long time, and in our country that haven't seen these in a long time. There are places in the world that still use them because they actually work pretty well. When you would yoke two things together, two oxen, you, they would actually have a word for that. They'd be called a yoke of oxen. They would be working together as a yoke. So in the Bible, you see this image often because they were used to it. It was something in a farming society they would see all the time. Sometimes a yoke is just a yoke. Sometimes in the Bible, it talks about not yoking an ox and a donkey together. Elisha plows with 12 yoke of oxen. Okay, That just takes a lot of planning to be able to do that. Okay, Jesus tells a parable of a banquet when one of the guests won't come to the parable because he had just bought five yoke of oxen and he wants to test them out so he won't go to the party. So in the Bible, sometimes a yoke is just a yoke. Normally, though, a yoke is a metaphor. A yoke can be an image of service. This is especially too true in rabbinic literature. It doesn't show up in the Bible as much. But in the rabbis, they, they talk about the yoke of the commandments and the yoke of the law being a good thing, that you want to live under the commandments. You want to put them on as your yoke. We see this sort of in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 26. It says, It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. It's talking about it's, it's good to be under the yoke of the Lord and to wait on the Lord and to be in service to the Lord. Okay, There's yoke as a good image. Most of the time, a yoke is used not as an image of service, but a bad image of servitude or slavery. It's a symbol of bondage. For instance, in Lamentations 1.14, it says, My sins have been bound into a yoke. So in Lamentations, it says that this thing is like my sin, and I am captured by it. And most often, the symbol of the yoke is used to talk about uh, breaking bondage. Or sometimes it's for sin, Isaiah 58. It is not, uh, it, is this not the fast I chose to loosen the bonds of wickedness and undo the bonds of the yoke and let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Or Hosea says, I let them with cords of man, with the bonds of love. I led them. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. I bent down and I fed them. Okay, so the Lord is saying, I'm like the person that comes and gives freedom. Freedom. And very often that's the image. Uh, very often it's about foreign powers. Jeremiah 28 says, I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. So part of the understanding is the Egyptians put Israel under a yoke. The Babylonians put Israel under a yoke because it made them slaves. And God is going to bring freedom. Paul uses this imagery related to sin. He says in Galatians 5, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Paul says, You have been freed from sin, 
But if you follow the law, it's like putting a yoke back on. Why would you do that? Yoking is also an image of joining. Think about this double yoke. Okay, and Paul in 2 Corinthians 14 tells us to not be bound with unbelievers. He means not just, not, not about, this is not about marriage. It's not about uh, a lot of things that we tend to re- read this into. It's about be careful who you hook up with. Be careful who you have relationship with that you don't end up hooking up with their ideals and their morals and their views. You are supposed to yoke with Christ. So here in our passage, Jesus takes all this imagery and it is a rich image in the Bible. In the middle of this conflict with the Pharisees, he picks up this image because the Pharisees love the yoke of the law. The Pharisees are often painted as really bad people, okay? They're the bad guys in all the stories, right? But the Pharisees have an honest concern for Israel. They do not want the people of Israel to go back into slavery. They would like to see the people of Israel out from underneath the Roman authority. Well, how do you do that? Well, for the Pharisees, it was about making Israel holy and pure. And so for them, it was really important that you followed the laws. And it was really important that you didn't hang out with those who did. What was the old saying? I don't swear, spit, or chew, or hang out with people that do. You know that one? Okay. For the Pharisees, who you were around messed with your purity and uh, what laws you followed. In fact, they wanted to build a hedge around the, wall, the, the laws. That's the phrase that's often used, a hedge. So if the law is not to say the Lord's name in vain, the Pharisees said, well, let's not use the Lord's name at all. So they wouldn't say the Lord's name. They wouldn't even say it just in case they didn't say it the wrong way. And so the, the law says that you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But, but what does work on the Sabbath mean? Well, the Pharisees had understandings, and the Jewish rabbis even had understandings about Sabbath. You could walk so far away from your house, but any further would be considered work. Okay, And you could cook in your house, but this much cooking would not. There were all these rules on top of the rules to make sure you stayed holy. You just stayed away from the rules. That's why it's called a hedge. You stayed away from those lines. The Pharisees had some. Everybody listen to this. 365 prohibitions out of the Old Testament and 250 commands based on their interpretations. 356 no's, 250 do this. How do you even keep track of that? How do you even keep track of that many rules? Okay, well, they could, but a whole lot of people couldn't. A whole lot of people, because of life circumstances, could never keep track of all those, could never follow all of those. And so the yoke of the law for the Pharisees wasn't just a yoke. It was a burden. Okay, it was slavery. You get, you get stuck, and a lot of people couldn't carry it. And the problem for the Pharisees is that Jesus is blatantly ignoring and even undermining a lot of their laws. He won't buy off on their yoke. He keeps doing things on the Sabbath. He keeps hanging out with these impure, holy people. And the Pharisees can't take it. In fact, he's not just, you've got to understand this about Pharisees. It's not just that Jesus is a threat to their power. He is a threat to the future and the hope of Israel. That's how they see him. They see him as undermining everything they're trying to do in saving Israel. And if the people get behind this Jesus, we are in trouble. Our nation is going to be wiped out because Jesus is not staying true to the one holy God. Okay, it's not just a power thing for the Pharisees. It is a matter of life and death for the nations. 
And so they have to do something about it. And so right in the middle of this struggle, Jesus prays this little prayer out loud for everyone to hear. He thanks God for giving to him these little children that are listening. And then he says, let me read it again. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, the Pharisees have a heavy yoke. Their rules are a burden, they, and some cannot hold up to it, which means some are excluded from the grace of God. But Jesus presents another way. If you're weary, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. It's a lot easier. Now, what does Jesus mean by his yoke is easy and his burden light? Well, he cannot mean that he has lower expectations for us. That's not what he means. And we know that because earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says stuff like this. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And Jesus says, you've heard it said not to murder, but but I don't even think you should be angry. You've heard it said not to commit adultery. You shouldn't even lust. Okay, if anything, Jesus has higher standards than the law. He doesn't throw off the law. Jesus cannot mean that life following Jesus is always easy. Okay, because we know that. Our life is not easy because we follow Jesus. Okay, he's talking to a bunch of disciples, most of which died for their faith. Okay, you mean to tell me he meant their life was going to be easy? In fact, Jesus says that in life we will face trials. What Jesus is getting at here is the essence of grace. Is not the nature of God to heap on us guilt and rules so that it becomes a burden we cannot carry. God is gentle and God gives grace and God does not bury you in laws. One of the people that taught me about this was a, was a guy named Brennan Manning, author of the Ragamuffin Gospel. He, he understood grace in an amazing way because he was a priest and a speaker and a Christian writer who struggled with alcoholism his whole life. And he understood grace that he never lived up to. And here's what he used to say. Jesus loves you just as you are, not as you should be, because you will never be as you should be. Let me say that again. Jesus loves you just as you are and not as you should be because you will never be as you should be. That is grace. Grace that is a complete gift. Grace that acknowledges that you will never be the person you should be. You will never be deserving of God's grace and yet here it is. And for the Pharisees, that's just too good to be true. I want to earn it. I want to be a part of it. And aren't we like that a little bit too? Don't we have trouble with this idea that God just loves us? So we put on yokes. So we punish ourselves by by not forgiving our own selves. Okay, God, you can give me grace, but you know, there's this one thing I did when I was younger. And uh, you're not going to get to give me grace for that. I'm going to keep my own grace. Or I'm going to keep my own unforgiveness about that. I'm going to... I'm going to be punishing myself. I'm going to weigh myself down with my own guilt. Or we yoke ourselves to other things, thinking that will make us feel better. Okay, We tie in with the wrong yoke, and we connect with the wrong ideals, and 
We think that if, if only I would win in this area of my life, if only I could pull this off, then I would be worthy of God's grace. We think if we burden ourselves, if we join with something else, we can somehow be good enough. We make grace a burden. We choose slavery over freedom. But that is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is, is light, and it is easy, and it is grace. But don't think it's not a burden. It's heavy. The grace of Jesus is absolutely heavy, but here's the difference. Jesus does the heavy lifting for us. Jesus does the heavy lifting for us. Follow Jesus is a burden. And because we have sinned, the penalty of that is death. But we don't have to carry that load and we don't have to pay that penalty because Jesus did the heavy lifting for us. It's like this double yoke. And when we hook up with Jesus, he does the heavy lifting to make it light for us. And what you and I need to do is take this yoke. And for the Pharisees, it's offensive. How, how can I follow a Jesus like that? How could I not just, just trust, just accept this gift? And I am telling you that I have talked to enough people that it's a struggle for us too. It's a struggle for me too at times to forgive myself, to give myself grace when I know I don't deserve it. And yet that's the point of grace is that the yoke isn't a burden because Jesus gave it to us. And so here's the challenge for you and I today. Can we put off the yokes of things we've done in the past? Can we put off the yokes where we've hitched ourselves to the wrong ideals? And can we hook up with Christ? Can Christ be our light and easy burden? And some of you are weighed down today. Some of you have been carrying things for a long time. Let it go and take up this lighter burden. Get rid of those old yokes and take on Christ. Let us pray. Lord, it is so hard for us to trust you. We're comfortable with our old yokes. We're comfortable with our slavery. We identify with our guilt. We've fallen in love with our burdens. Let us put them off. Let us accept the true gift of grace, hard though it may be. Melt our hearts of stone that we may pull for you in this world. May we do the things that you call us to do, not out of guilt, but in response to grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.